Fraser. My guest today is David Sturman, Senior Policy Analyst at New America. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most prominent ideas in our national security discourse. It's at the center of our post-9-11 foreign policies, and it's the driving force behind a long-running critique of these policies that has by now made its way into the basic sloganeering of our national-level politics. This is the concept of endless wars. And the new problem we face of both parties employing the rhetoric of ending endless wars, which is not borne out by substantive policy changes to that effect. And this creates a, a very real problem of uh, low information uh, members of the public accepting the erroneous sense that the post 9-11 foreign policies have shifted while it merely continues the way it's been, uh, largely below the radar. David, uh, you've written that this military posture that we've maintained since 9-11 with a distinct character of endlessness is an escalatory posture that comes with substantial risks. It fuels the militarization of American politics as well. First, let's just define what you mean by endless war and give us a sense of what the policies associated with that slogan actually look like. What are the contours of what the United States is actually doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. For me, in, and in this report, I define endless war as a war that has two characteristics, one being that the, there's a belligerent who can't be defeated, and the other is that that belligerent who can't be defeated or denied access to the battlefield um, is also pursuing objectives that it cannot achieve. And the interaction between those where they can't be pushed out of the war or eliminated, but also are seeking things that can't actually come to an end, generates a sense of endlessness. So that's what I view as defining an endless war. I think there's certainly other uses, usages of the term. Um, it's certainly not a term that has sort of a clear structured meaning that's consistently used by everyone. On the other hand, as I track in this paper and I've looked at in some other cases, I think this sort of meaning tied to those two aspects can't be defeated. Um, pursuing aims that are not achievable is something that occurs throughout a long history of references to it, going back to even the 1800s. A lot of this centers on your assessment that terrorist groups actually don't pose a major national security threat, certainly not an existential one to the United States. In fact, you, you even argue that if terrorist violence proves to be an existential threat, the mechanism by which it becomes existential will be societal overreaction to terrorist violence. In other words, it's our reaction to the false perception of an existential threat that will do more damage to U.S. wealth, interests, and power than the supposed threat itself. I think the facts on that are, are pretty clear at this point, but some listeners may need to be convinced. So how, how do you assess the, the terrorist threat? Yeah, so I think the key measure is whether, for sort of a sense of endlessness, is whether or not you think terrorists um, or a particular enemy deemed to be terrorist can pose an existential threat to the United States. Because for the definition, that would mean that um, 
the war or whatever is happening that we understand as war could end and could end with an American loss or an American defeat rather than a choice of the United States to end its military actions. Um, I think that's pretty clearly not in the cards for the United States. Um, But also looking more broadly, the Al-Qaeda ISIS have not really shown themselves capable of projecting even highly disruptive repeated attacks into the United States. Since 9-11, according to our tracking at New America, no foreign terrorist organization or jihadist foreign terrorist organization has actually fully directed and carried out an attack inside the United States where they provided um, truly substantial material aid to the attack since the 9-11 attacks, or deadly attacks, sorry. Um, So there's been a couple attacks that luckily were not deadly. The 2009 underwear bombing, which could have been very close, but the bomb fizzled um, or didn't explode properly. More recently, we have this shooting in Pensacola, um, which did have actual real connections of some form to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which was also behind the underwear bombing. In many ways, that seems, at least from the information we have now, to be a bit more of a enabled via online communication, even though it was someone who came from abroad to attack the United States. Even sort of putting that up in the level of direction, um, that's one attack over almost 20 years. It's far from a repeated campaign that would fundamentally disrupt American society due to the attacks themselves, let alone something that would deny the United States territory it considers to be part of itself or cause an end to the government. Um, And I think that's actually pretty well accepted. President Obama stated this and various officials of his have stated this. Um, There's really, I think, no one who would contend that terrorist violence today threatens the existence of the U.S., and then you're left discussing um, how stark of a disruption is it to American society. Right. And I think you can kind of see this in some of the policies and the way they're talked about uh, by officials. So, for example, uh, we have engaged in uh, a drone war, uh, you know, using unmanned aerial vehicles to bomb sites in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya. These, this kind of policy has been ongoing since the Bush administration up to now. And a lot of times when they talk about a specific strike that they've engaged in, they won't say, oh, this was to disrupt an impending attack on the United States. Um, rather, they'll say something about, oh, this was an attempt to degrade Al-Qaeda's ability in this, that, or the other sphere, or degrade or disrupt uh, this group. Um, uh, That kind of gives a sense of why this can be understood as an endless uh, approach to conflict, as opposed to um, something that we're doing on a limited basis. Yeah, I think there's sort of two aspects there. On the one hand, language of sort of degrade or disrupt as subjective in one world could be actually a sign of um, the war not being endless. The promotion of objectives that at least 
theoretically are actually achievable. The thing is, I don't think we are in that world. And the reason is, I think, twofold. One is that often these objectives are put out without much reference to what exactly is the object of the degrading effort. They're often phrased in using sort of ING words or gerunds. Um, our objective is degrading Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or degrading ISIS. Well, when do you know you've degraded it enough? The public statements at least don't provide much in the way of measurable outcomes for what is enough. I think that's related to the second and perhaps more important reason, which is that for all the sense that we've actually narrowed the war on terror or even um, dispensed with the concept of a war on terror, um, the United States has not really abandoned that um, original sort of sin of the war on terror in which there was a promotion of a concept of war against sort of a broad concept of terrorism rather than a specific enemy. But on top of that, even when discussing specific enemies, those enemies become defined within ways that um, sort of replicate at a lower level the problem of declaring war on a tactic, terrorism. Even where the sort of objective has been narrowed to a particular organization, and the Obama administration and then the Biden administration, um, and I think also to some extent the Trump administration, although we can maybe argue on that, have not sort of embraced the early war on terror rhetoric of the war on terror includes Hezbollah, Hamas, anyone who has committed terrorism. If you read the early stuff, there's also, this is a war against Iraq because of their support for Black September in the 70s. So that got abandoned. But then even this sort of question of what is Al-Qaeda? Is it, when it comes to the war on Al-Qaeda, is it understood to be just a particular form of that organization? What if that organization begins to decentralize itself? What if there's sort of a movement attached to that organization? And because these aren't wars on states that have more difficulty, in my view, sort of shifting between various structures, it becomes difficult to separate that sort of, um, what does defeat even mean for a terrorist organization? from the broader initial sin of the war on terror, which was declaring war not on a particular organization, but on this broader concept of a tactic, or even in the narrower senses, a movement. And that just continues through, and I, in the paper I look at a couple different quotes across administrations that are pretty similar in this very expansive language about what is to be defeated. Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's part of the issue here is that the United States has not selected limited goals. And even when it presents seemingly limited goals, they often are still being overshadowed by the continuation of these unlimited goals that may not always be fully recognized, but are still really there in shaping how people think about what defeat means. Right, and in some in some of the language, some of the official language that we hear, it's uh, 
sort of not even it's sort of a not even a hidden aspect like on the one hand we have uh, politicians of both parties sort of talking the talk and employing rhetoric about ending endless wars and shifting from that initial post 9/11 posture and then not doing it in terms of policy but you also occasionally have um people sort of voicing openly the righteousness and wisdom of an approach that doesn't have achievable objectives. So for example, you point to James Jeffrey who worked on Syria under the Trump administration and he talked about having achieved a stalemate um and made an affirmative case for that being a desirable policy that we entered Syria militarily and created a stalemate among various actors and this is a good thing we don't need to have achieved a specific objective and then withdrawn yeah i think that's the core part of it um that is concerning i think one thing that's important to think about when sort of putting forward the concept of endlessness is that just saying that a war has taken on an endless character doesn't um that can't be sort of the end of the discussion of why it's a problem and there's then sort of a secondary question of does endlessness make sense particularly because in at least my formulation of what endless war means um it's not that the war will never end i don't think when people talk about endless war they're actually making a projection into the future that this war will never end under any circumstances. Um, it's a claim that the end is not foreseeable at this moment, yet force continues to be used for a war that does not have a foreseeable end. Now, I think sometimes if you have the correct sort of circumstances, it may well make moral sense to continue fighting or continue waging war without an end in sight. I think that's probably the case if you're facing extermination or the destruction of your polity. Um, but I don't think that's the case for the U.S. And to my eyes, that makes it difficult to make a moral argument for why the U.S. is pursuing these endless wars or use of military force. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about this problem of uh, political rhetoric signaling one thing to the public and yet policy uh, remaining uh, quite contrary. So one of the things you wrote, just to reiterate, is, quote, political rhetoric abounds regarding ending America's endless wars, yet much of it is little more than talk, proclaiming an end to endless war while continuing to wage them. I think, for example, President Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan appears to me to uh, have the potential of, of this kind of problem. On the one hand, he made the decision to withdraw ground troops, and we'll mostly be withdrawn from the country. Um, but we're repositioning military assets just outside of Afghanistan and Central Asian countries and over in the Persian Gulf and promise to continue bombing uh, if the Taliban uh, gains too much sway or they perceive some kind of uh, terrorist plot or, or what have you. There's also spies on the ground. It sort of seems more like a shift in tactics rather than in an explicit change in strategy where the goals we seek, the objectives we're trying to achieve are changed, uh, and in our case, to be achievable in and of themselves. 
Right. I think for me, one of the big errors that has allowed so much of this language of endless war to proliferate in a way that can sometimes be misleading um, is sort of an equation of troop numbers or even the number of strikes with the question of endless war. And because the definition I present is based on objectives, um, there actually is not a linear relationship between the number of troops you have in a country or the number of strikes you're conducting and whether or not you're moving away or towards endless war. Um, it's really a question of the objectives. And as long as there continue to be use of military force in any means um, tied to objectives, or even if military force pauses, but because we don't have a actual statement backed up by a legal or social framework that would ground a real separation of this was that war, now we're considering a new war that requires new authorizations, new public debate. Um, it's not an end to the war. Um, and I think that's something we've seen with um, potentially with the Afghanistan withdrawal. There are concerns about that. I think we definitely saw it with the Syria withdrawal or aborted Syria withdrawal under Trump. And uh, um, similarly, the withdrawal under Somalia that now the United States, after seemingly a six-month pause in strikes, is back to conducting airstrikes in Somalia. That um, in the absence of an actual effort to say our objectives have been achieved or we didn't achieve our objectives, here are new aims, they're achieved, um, there's not an actually an end to the war, regardless of have you reduced the number of troops to some hundred troops? Have you actually pulled them all out? Has there not been an airstrike in months um, without that change in objectives? It's not an end to the endless war. And at best, it produces sort of a this sort of quasi maybe the war has ended, maybe it hasn't, but we can't really tell because there's always the chance that the war will come back and re-escalate as it has um, in Somalia with recent strikes after a six-month pause. In Yemen, there have been pauses. Um, we saw the sort of U.S. war in Iraq against al-Qaeda in Iraq slash ISIS come back because they began to pose a greater threat and justified, importantly, on the basis of similar authorizations to what was justifying um, the prior U.S. military actions against the group in Iraq. So, uh, It seems to me one of the features of our system that is supposed to kind of protect against the problem that we're talking about is uh, that the Constitution provides Congress with the authority to declare war and enter the United States into hostilities. And in order to do that, you need something of a public debate and has to satisfy the public's desire for achievable objectives. Um, and, uh, you know, the legal side of this is incredibly uh, depressing, it seems to me. We passed a number of authorizations for the use of military force post 9-11 that were really broad. And I think each administration has expanded and abused those authorities. But there is right now uh, something of a, a political movement on Capitol Hill to repeal old AUMFs, authorizations for the use of military force. And in fact, 
uh, that's going on right now with some with the 2002 authorization and older ones like the 1991. Uh, there's still a debate about the 2001 uh, AUMF, which is really the the, the one that uh, administrations actually cite for for uh, active hostilities throughout the world. How do you assess the politics around these recent efforts in Congress to repeal old AUMFs? So I'm, I'm optimistic that it's good that old AUMFs are being repealed. I think any sort of broader effort to actually end the endless war will necessarily include these actions and also um, action on the 2001 AUMF. That said, I think it's important that these authorizations, I don't think, are the cause of our endless war. They sort of reflect the broader societal decision-making processes. So just cleaning up the sort of legislative language won't matter if, for example, the president begins to assert very expansive understanding of self-defense, and then strikes continue to be carried out under a broad theory of self-defense for the United States, um, essentially continuing an aim of this, these aims of the broader war against al-Qaeda or ISIS or terrorism more broadly. So I think it's also relevant to just remember that there is a history of um, the U.S. government carrying out war or engaging in military or paramilitary actions um, against the will of Congress, against the explicit will of Congress, and that in the absence of sort of a broader effort to change how the executive acts, but also how Congress enforces its will, the legislative language doesn't have meaning just in its own. It's an expression of how far or how far from the sort of definition of this is a new war versus this is an old war or this war is over, we are, but it doesn't on its own um, get us to where we need to be. That requires a discussion of what our objectives are and whether they've been accomplished or not. I noticed an interesting feature of the debate around those repeal efforts. Um, some, particularly on the Republican side, such as Senator Ted Cruz, suggested that, for example, he'd be willing to repeal the 2001 AUMF so long as Congress can find some other way to provide the executive with an open permission slip to attack Iran. Cruz said this explicitly. Uh, now, he's obviously confused in understanding the 2000 AUMF and what it was uh, supposed to authorize, but this kind of puts a strange spin on your focused critique of endless wars against non-state actors that don't have explicit objectives. It's also seemingly a kind of the, the culture of our national security politics that we should just be constantly at war with even states like Iran in the Middle East. Yeah, I think I don't know about that particular um, comment of Cruz's. I haven't seen it, but I think that is something. And I think to me, there's something particular about these counterterrorism wars that's a particular kind of endlessness and also is sort of a endlessness that if we think about sort of a spectrum of how endless does it feel, with on the one end sort of a perhaps trite statement that the world system or international system is anarchic and states are always in competition, how do you distinguish that competition from war? That distinction is, of course, at some level, a blurry social construction in itself to um, 
the sort of almost 20 years of war in Afghanistan on the part of the current U.S. military efforts. Um, I think our counterterrorism wars are clearly far more to the sort of larger scale efforts, or at least sometimes smaller operations, but tied to a willingness to engage in larger efforts explicitly. Um, whereas some of the competition with states um, may also be viewable as sort of endless, but is not quite the same kind of endlessness. That said, I think it's important to think about what what endlessness might mean for the U.S.-Iran shadow conflict and proxy conflict. And is that really an endless war in itself that is already ongoing? Um, there's certainly been military actions, as we recently saw, um, in one case, just directly between the United States and Iran. But I think it's one of these aspects of trying to talk about or think through these clearly socially constructed concepts and war, even our notion of war, you'll see in some of the historical discussion of endless war, there's a lot of dispute about what constitutes war itself. Um, to me, I think probably the way forward on that is people should try and state what they mean or where on this sort of broader spectrum of conflict they're drawing the distinction between war and something less than war, but also acknowledging that it's useful to look at competition or things that might be viewed as war, might be viewed as war from a perspective other than one's own, um, below one's own threshold, and how that might itself be endless. So to get back to the counterterrorism uh, type operations that you focus on, despite the fact that the term has been picked up in our national level politics to the point that, you know, promising to end endless wars appears to be a winning campaign strategy, some commentators have argued that the slogan of endless wars is an sort of amorphous concept. It's kind of hollow and it doesn't accurately depict U.S. policy. And some others even say that even if there's a kernel of truth in the slogan, it's still the right policy. Um, I, I refer to these people as the lawnmowers. Uh, they want to, quote, mow the lawn, and they think that that's actually the most appropriate uh, way to approach this problem of international terrorism. Why do you think they're wrong? Yeah, so I guess I'll begin with the criticism that there's just no meaning to the term. And I think that's clearly wrong. You see it sort of popping up in various discussions. And there's a pretty consistent appearance of it alongside um, the terms objectives, aims, this concept of a power that's not defeatable. Um, I mean, even such a prominent thing as um, Orwell's 1984 is basically putting forward, I think, pretty much an explanation of the definition I just um, gave, although perhaps there's some quibbles on um, how to understand it, and it's fictional. But he talks about this sort of the war between his um, fictional superstates, which are themselves sort of representations of powers or imagined powers in what the Cold War could become, um, as sort of battles between ruminant animals that aren't able to actually hurt each other because the way their horns are set up 
but continue to fight. And he explicitly says, this seems unlike what we traditionally understand as war, where there tends to be an end, whether it's victory or defeat. Um, But you also see references to endless war and how a sense of endlessness shapes government policies and um, U.S. government documents. There's CIA assessments of the Iran-Iraq war that worried that the sense of endlessness in that war would push um, the various combatants, um, Iran and Iraq, to pursue more aggressive and dangerous efforts to bring decision to the conflict. There's a long tradition of references to endless war, endless conflict regarding Japan's activities in Manchuria, and then the sort of broader Pacific War, um, the U.S. war against Japan in World War II, that both comes from contemporaneous State Department um, cables or messages, but also well um, exhibited in sort of the secondary or um, the historical literature analyzing that period. So I don't find that convincing. I think this question of, is it just the right choice, um, is one that is tougher to answer. But my concern regarding just an embrace of endlessness is that it makes an analytical error in trying to analyze the costs of the conflict um, before the conflict is over. In that way, it's more of an embrace of strategic incoherence than it actually is a strategy. And in, at least in the context of the war on terror, I think this is particularly dangerous given the lack of limitation on um, what the war is, the way um, it expands both geographically, temporally, um, in terms of who is targeted. So we already see sort of some efforts to pull in the authorizations supposedly meant for Al-Qaeda to then affiliates or groups that weren't really there on 9-11 or were only loosely tied to Al-Qaeda on 9-11. And then even from there to some efforts to portray maybe it could apply to Iran um, or at least can justify military action against even other countries that disrupt our um, counterterrorism operations. So I think there's just a lot of escalatory potential that's not factored in when people point to um, this as a low-cost conflict. And on top of that, I also think there's a tendency to dismiss the way that um, waging an endless war or not having an end in sight to a war tends to warp politics. And by that, I mean politics both in the Middle Eastern and other countries where the U.S. is waging these wars, where there's a power using violence in their countries that is really in no way accountable to the populations in that country, um, which, to my eyes, probably disrupts efforts to generate peace agreements, to stabilize countries, to produce any kind of democratic legitimacy because there's a governance force enforced by violence that has no accountability to the actual people there. But also in the United States in the way that a willingness to engage in um, continual use of violence and force takes costs on the people who are tasked with using that force, 
takes us on the broader society through the militarization of our politics. Probably some links to some of the concerns about authoritarianism and anti-democratic politics in the U.S. I don't think these should be sort of necessarily over-exaggerated, and they each need to be analyzed in their own right as to specific claims of causal pathways. And many of these issues, there's many causes for our current troubles with anti-democratic <laughs> politics in the U.S., but um, I think it's it would be incorrect to presume that waging 20 years of war without an end in sight does not substantially contribute to that. Do you have any theories on why this posture, which is so problematic, as we've talked about, has been so sticky? I mean, after the initial years and certainly after the Bush administration, I think there was a kind of collective understanding to a certain extent that um, the way we conceived of things uh, early on led to really costly quagmires and ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Problems have been pointed out with the drone war and so on and the light footprint approach. Um, and while the political rhetoric, as we've mentioned several times in this conversation, has changed to better reflect maybe public opinion or just the reality of where we are 20 years in, um, policies haven't changed away from this posture. Why do you think they're so sticky on the policy uh, domain, uh, even if they're a little less so in the politics? Yeah, I think a big part of it is that there's not a huge cost to the United States that's upfront in the way that costs of prior wars might have been, and the way it's distributed in the United States is um, not across the whole population. And, I mean, to some extent, maybe that's at odds with the claim of it's really destructive to American society. I think it's not quite as intention as people might portray, but it's certainly true that the number of Americans and American soldiers dying in these conflicts, at least so far, um, if you begin the clock after the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, is really quite low. Um, and I think that means there's not a big political backlash against the overall frame as opposed to concerns about particular instances. I guess my question in response to that would be that the politicians have recognized this and, and decided to shift rhetoric. And it's true that they can still pursue these same policies at relatively low costs or in a, in a way so that the, the American people are insulated from those costs, that still doesn't quite get at why internally, why inside officialdom, why the politicians themselves who use this rhetoric don't also go further as a matter of policy and try to shift it. Uh, they might think that the costs are worth it and that uh, you know, we're actually following the right policy. And in that case, it makes sense. But there's also a, some recognition at the top of our politics that we've been doing things the wrong way. And yet, you know, for example, President Obama, I think in many ways wanted to shift away from this global war on terror posture and tried to in some ways and found it difficult. I think Trump uh, same thing, very public and open about his criticisms of the way we've done things and of endless wars, and somehow internally just couldn't turn that ship of state. And now we have uh, possibly a similar thing happening under Biden. So 
I think there's certainly stories to be told about the systems of elite thought going into the production of these um, policies, how they can sort of prevent accountability or produce inertia. I think there's also a story to be told about the U.S. still does have interests um, in many of these areas. For example, in the reinitiation of the sort of war in Iraq, be it the counter-ISIS war, um, I think certainly the U.S. had a pretty legitimate interest in um, going after a group that held Americans hostage and murdered them, and a group that was expansionist in the Middle East and instituting systems that I think were just a character, had characteristics beyond, in many ways, um, the very problematic and horrible existing systems. I mean, reinstituting or instituting slavery um, as part of this apocalyptic vision. Um, So I think that all goes into it. I would maybe put forward another issue that I think is perhaps, um, to my eyes, even maybe the biggest issue, which is for all the statements about endless war recognition of it, there's still not really a recognition of just the extent to which um, those initial aims on like the days after 9-11 already put us on this sort of pathway to endless conflict. The idea that we're even in a sort of something that could be described as war with al-Qaeda or terrorists broadly. The idea of war as the correct answer with the desire to defeat the enemy when it comes to counterterrorism, rather than framing it as um, there may be particular threats from terrorists that we respond to with war or military action, but we're not in a war to extirpate this group or movement um, from Middle Eastern society, which, I mean, to my eyes, is probably impossible given how decentralized these ideas can become, but also they're real tied to at least parts of um, the societies and their actual responses to real grievances. And I think for all the sort of narrowing that has been done, there just hasn't either been um, at the policy level or even at the public level a true recognition of um, just how broad American objectives were, how little they've narrowed, and how much 20 years of pursuing those objectives makes it really difficult to get out of them, even if you commit yourself to an effort to get out of those objectives. What has to change for us to actually change course away from an endless war posture? What are the things of substance and as opposed to just rhetoric? that need to change for us to be sure that uh, there's a substantive shift going on? Yeah, I think there's two things, and perhaps only one of them is actually something the U.S. government can really change on its own. But those two things, to to my eyes, are, first, the U.S. needs to abandon the goal of defeating terrorist organizations or terrorist movements. Um, I think that's 
not really possible and certainly not possible in the way that it's sort of defeat has come to be understood in American society with regard to terrorist organizations. Now, I don't say that to mean we can't pursue goals like defeat ISIS as a territorial unit, um, although even that might end up having problems that we should consider. But this broader sense that there will be a world where there's no organization that promotes this view, nor organization that has lineage to the people who attacked us on 9-11, I think, um, just isn't going to exist. And the effort to really, the effort to claim that that might exist tends to fail when people point to the links rather than just admitting we shouldn't have pursued unlimited objectives in the first place. The second issue is, um, I think even if you do that, you run into the risk of sort of endlessness as repeated raids or wars that may even be authorized separately via real public debate, but in response to actual conditions in the region. I think that's also important. The primary producer, in my view, of endlessness is American decisions about what its aims are, but it's also a response to um, conditions in these regions that produce threats to American interests, to potentially the U.S., and certainly um, whether or not those should be responded to with war generates these moments that spark fear in the American public. Um, and I think we can do a lot to sort of minimize the extent to which the American response to such moments of fear is war and where war may actually be the correct response to ensure that those wars are limited in duration and in objectives that they end and don't become reconstitutions of the war on terrorism writ broadly in all its original breadth. But to some extent, um, I mean, there's a criticism of American tactics as whack-a-mole. I think there can be a criticism of ending endless war as falling into its own sort of form of whack-a-mole, um, dealing with crises as they arise, if there's not some effort to more broadly improve conditions in the region, regions that question and reduce the dynamics that produce hostility in the first place. and. For all the part U.S. government has played in generating that hostility through its military actions or through even non-military ways we've engaged with people in the region or regions in question, these movements and organizations aren't only responses to the American presence. David Sturman, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you.